thank you that all of us who are here today, God, we've come to receive from you. But Father, you have so much more that you want from us. You want us to contribute one to another. You want us to be involved in each other's lives, to give and to receive. So I pray that today you would give us that revelation, that you would help us, and that you would guide us into the healthy relationships that you have for our lives so that we can flourish in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, over the last three weeks, we took a break in the middle, but we've been in a series called Missing Pieces. And we've talked about a few things. We've talked about what it means to be in relationship in the body of Christ, and we've also talked about what it means to be a godly or a healthy friend within the context of Christianity. And we've referred to a lot of different passages of Scripture. We've gone into the New Testament, and we've talked about what it means to be the body of Christ and how God is calling all of us to take our place in his body so that the body overall functions the way that he intended it. We've talked about all of these things, but there's one particular passage that we've looked at many times, and I want to refer to it again this morning. And we read through it in first service, but I'm just going to refer to it very quickly. In Acts chapter 2, we see the birth of the church. We see the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit descends upon the early church believers. We see that that's a witness to other people who come in and they're like, wow, we want to find out what that's all about. And so the early church began to thrive and we see that suddenly thousands of people go from not knowing Jesus or not believing in him to suddenly becoming followers of Christ because of the witness of the Holy Spirit. This amazing thing happens, and then suddenly the church begins to flourish. And as God is adding to their number, it says at the end of Acts chapter 2 and in verse 42, it says that God, or that the early church believers continued in four specific areas of their devotion. I want to highlight these four things real quick. It says, number one, that they, they continued in the apostles' doctrine or the apostles' teaching. They continued in fellowship. They continued in the breaking of bread, and they continued... In prayer. Now, the apostles' doctrine was important because those were the guys that had spent time with Jesus. And now that the early church is forming, those men who had been around Jesus, they've received guidance from him. They had caught on to the heart of God. They became the influential voices in the early church world that kind of gave the early church its direction and its bearings. They knew where to go because of the voice of the apostles that was speaking to them. Played such an important role. I want to look at the third thing real quick, the breaking of bread. That's such a practical thing, but there was a lot of work that was being done in the early church. And when you look at what was happening, Scripture tells us in Acts 2 that they, were, they held all things in common. It was like if I had something that you needed, I was just willing to part with it because you needed it more than I did. Or if there was a need that I could meet because God had blessed me with an abundance, I said, you know what? What God has given me is not for me. It's now for you because God has given me an abundance to be a blessing to you. You know, we talk about being blessed to be a blessing. That was the exact picture of it there in Acts chapter 2. But there was a lot of work that was being done. And one of the most beautiful things that took place was this common breaking of bread. It was like when the work was set aside, the believers would come together and say, we can at least share a meal together just to enjoy each other's company. It was just that simple in the early church. And then the fourth thing that it says that the believers devoted themselves to was prayer. I think prayer is pretty obvious. How many people realize we need to have a prayer life if we're in a relationship with God? The thing that's so beautiful about prayer within this context is that if you were to kind of try to put yourself in the shoes of one of these early church believers, your prayer life had just gone to a whole new level because now suddenly God is not external. The Holy Spirit lives here. God lives here, which now means that I can have a relationship with God, but there's an open line of communication because God doesn't live externally of me. He lives deep inside me in my heart. It was this beautiful thing. So these were common elements that all the early church believers had. But there's a fourth thing I want to point to really quickly that's the main thing I want to look at today, and it's this idea 
of fellowship. Fellowship. The early church believers understood that fellowship was incredibly important, incredibly important. I think today that fellowship, if you look at those four things, fellowship and probably followed closely by the breaking of bread together, fellowship is maybe the most overlooked important element in the church world today. So many of us absolutely neglect the fellowship that God wants to bring into our lives and that he wants us to have within his house and within the body of Christ. And, you know, fellowship is kind of an interesting word because I was thinking the other day, like, how often do we use the word fellowship in, in everyday life? Well, within the church, we use it because, you know, it's in, it's in the Bible. I heard um, about, you know, people who might be uh, scholars at an institute, and so they become fellows at that institute where they're all scholars together and they, they teach based upon their education. But the word fellowship, you know, unless you're like a Lord of the Rings fan or something, it's not really a word that we use all that often outside of church. And as I began to study out this word, one of the things that I, I kind of found in myself is that I think even I have misused the word fellowship in the past. Because for a lot of us as Christians, we look at fellowship and we think that it only means people just getting together and having a good time. Like we'll say, oh yeah, we had some really great fellowship at the restaurant or whatever, you know. And sometimes that can be the case, but fellowship is a whole lot more than just getting together and having a good time. And I want to point this out to you in Scripture, because if you remove fellowship from what the early church was doing, then it's very easy that the church could have gotten off track because it was playing such a key, a key role in the early church. Now, personally, I believe that if you had taken out any one of those elements, those four things we talked about, it would be hard to still call it a church. But fellowship was vital, and they understood, the early church believers understood that fellowship had to be included in what they were doing because everybody mattered. Everybody mattered. There was a place for everyone in the community. They valued those who were outside of it, so they opened their lives and opened their arms to bring people into that community by sharing what they had, giving to others, and receiving from others. Now, if you look at that word fellowship, I want to take a little bit of time to kind of break this down. And if you've been taught a lot about fellowship in the past, you'll know what the original words are here in the Greek. But the original word for fellowship in the Greek writings is the word koinonia or koinonia, however it is that you would pronounce it. And when you look back at what the meaning and the definition of that original word is, it has a few meanings. And I want to walk through these real quick. That word koinonia or fellowship, it means this. It means association, community. It sometimes means communion joint participation. Another, another line of definition for this is the share which one has in anything or participation. Another definition for this word koinonia is intimacy. That's such an interesting word because it's like I have to let down the walls that surround me to let you in and you have to do the same. We have to be, in, we have to be intentional about letting each other into each other's lives. That word intimacy, that's not a word that we use very often because we don't like to be intimate with too many people. We like to stay to ourselves. We like to keep our private things private. We don't like to let anybody in here get close to us and speak into our lives or even know about what's going on in our lives. But yet, that definition is right there for the word fellowship, intimacy. And then finally, the definition of fellowship or koinonia, a gift jointly, remember jointly, given back and forth, contributed, a collection, a contribution, as exhibiting an embodiment and proof of fellowship. Everything about the word koinonia tells us that fellowship is a whole lot more than just getting together and having a good time. Fellowship is a great exchange where I have something to give to you and you have something to give to me. That's the way that God intended the body of Christ to work. We all have a place. We all have something to offer. And we don't just receive, but we also 
give to one another. Now, I did a little bit of a deeper dive on this because I wanted to see where else this word was used in the New Testament. And I know that not everybody studies the Bible this way, but we do this a lot for the way that we want to teach it on Sunday. The word koinonia, that Greek word, it appears in the New Testament 20 times. And of those 20 times, it only gets translated into the word fellowship 12 times, which means that eight times it gets translated into a different word. And these are the different words that it gets translated into. Besides fellowship, it's communion, communication, contribution, and distribution. These are all action words that involve and include other people. Every time that we see that word, it's referring directly to our spiritual relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and one another. In other words, fellowship is an incredibly spiritual word. Maybe you've heard that word fellowship and you thought, again, it was just getting together and having a good time. Let me tell you something. If we view that idea of fellowship as just getting together and having a good time, we have incredibly undervalued this powerful thing that God wanted to give us because fellowship is incredibly spiritual. Amen? Everybody with me so far? Now, the early church understood this, and the reason why was because this is what was taught to them straight from the heart of Christ. This is what Jesus told the early church. He cared about the missing pieces. He wanted to include everybody who was currently or previously outside the flock, outside the circle. And so the apostles carried this teaching into the early church, and the early church believers picked up on it. And because they cared about fellowship, they cared about missing pieces, people who were outside the circles, they began to include them, give of themselves, and the early church began to explode. But it wasn't just an explosion and a flourishing that happened corporately. It was happening individually in their lives. So here's what we know. Fellowship is incredibly spiritual. And if we do not intentionally include fellowship as a key element in our Christian life, we are settling for a lesser form of Christianity and missing out on one of the most important ways that God wants to bring blessing into our lives. I would say this. Don't allow fellowship to be a missing piece of your walk with God. Because if you are walking out your walk with God by yourself thinking, well, it's just me and God and nobody else matters, you are missing a huge part of the equation. Now, let's take this a little bit further. Where does this whole idea come from? Where does the thought come from? Well, again, the apostles taught this to the early church because they got it from Jesus. Jesus talked about this in Luke chapter 15. So if you got your Bibles there, would you go with me to Luke 15? I want to spend the rest of the time that we have this morning in Luke 15. Luke chapter 15. When I was in Bible college in Australia, I, uh, I lived about a mile or so from where the campus was at, at our church. And I would walk from our apartment to school every day, and I knew what God had put in my heart to do with my life. And I began to kind of walk it out and pursue it and study it. And when I was in Bible college, I knew, Zach, get ready, because the day is coming where you are gonna, you're going to preach. That's what you're going to do. And walking back and forth through the Hills District in Sydney, I had the very first message that I ever felt like God put into my heart. And it was actually from this very passage from Luke chapter 15. It was the first message I ever preached uh, in church. And it was the first message I ever preached when I came on staff here at the bridge. I don't want to preach the same message today. I want to do something different. But Luke 15 is an incredibly significant passage of scripture because Jesus does something that he doesn't do anywhere else in all of the Gospels. He tells three consecutive stories or parables all in a row that were all about the same thing. He doesn't do it anywhere else in, in, that's recorded in the Gospels. And 
I think that this passage of Scripture reveals the thing that is most important to the heart of God. For all the Christians here today, I just want you to ponder this question for a moment. We're living in some crazy days. Does anybody recognize that we are living in some seriously crazy days? You know, Scripture talks about wars and rumors of wars, and we're like, check. Scripture talks about, you know, the crazy weather and natural disasters, and we're like, Harvey and Irma, check. Like, things are getting crazy if you haven't noticed. When you get home today, when you look on your phone or you turn on your computer or you turn on the TV, you're going to hear about the crazy things that are happening in our world today. And we need to be aware of the times in which we're living. But I just want to ask you this question today. If we really believe that the days that we are living in are significant, then what do you think is the most important thing to the heart of God? You don't have to say it out loud. Just consider it for a second. If we really believe there are significance to the days in which we are living, what is the most important thing to the heart of God right now? I would argue it's the missing pieces. It's the lost ones. It's the ones who are not currently a part of the flock. I believe that above all else, first and foremost, that is the most important thing to the heart of God. Now, how many people want to see God bless your life? I think the first place it starts is when we make the thing that's most important to God the thing that's most important to us. Now, I want to illustrate this from Luke chapter 15 for you today. Luke 15, Jesus is talking with some Pharisees and some scribes, okay? So these guys are like the religious elite. These are guys who are set in their ways. They're comfortable with who they are. They are like self-righteous to the core. They see themselves as being like upright and perfect before God. They see themselves as being better than everybody else. And everybody's coming to find out who Jesus is. They want to know, is this guy possibly the Messiah? Is this guy, you know, the chosen one, the, sent, the son of God? Is he, has he been sent by God? He's healing the sick. He's opening blind eyes. He's opening deaf ears. He's changing people's lives. Is it possible that he's the one we've been waiting for? But the religious elite were just stunned because as soon as they come to see Jesus with their own eyes, what do they find? That Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors. He's hanging out with sinners. He's hanging out with people who have a bad reputation. And they're like, there is no way that this guy could possibly be the guy because he's hanging out with all of the lost souls, with all of the missing pieces. And immediately this reveals to us what was most important to the heart of Jesus. So as the Pharisees and scribes sat there questioning Jesus in their heart, Jesus, knowing what's going on in their heads and in their heart, looks at them and tells them three stories. I want to talk through these three stories very quickly this morning from Luke chapter 15. This is what it says in verse 4 of Luke 15. First story Jesus tells. This is called the parable of the lost sheep. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. This is like zinger, man, straight to the heart of these religious people. Because they're like, wait, hold on a second. You're saying that God is more concerned with these lost people than he is with me, one of the found sheep. I know, God, I'm one of the upright religious people. Is that what he's saying? Funny enough, these guys were more lost than they thought. But when you look at the heart that Jesus is trying to to illustrate to them, he's he's letting them know the thing that God cares about as much as anything else is the ones who are not currently a part of the flock. Now, I'll just kind of throw this out there. The two stories that Jesus tells after this are very similar to this one. And all three stories talk about lost things or missing pieces. Now, 
You could look at this passage and say that it's all about the lost, it's all about the lost, and it is. But it is amazing to me when you look at this, how fellowship plays such a huge part in each thing that Jesus is talking about. Look at what he's talking about here with these sheep. He says, suppose a shepherd has a hundred sheep and he loses one of them. Now, I'm not a shepherd like in a literal sense. I'm a pastor, which means shepherd, but... I don't know anything about sheep, okay? Like, I know that they stink. I know that, like, I just don't really want to be around them necessarily. I don't know anything about livestock. But when it comes to sheep, I don't know anything about them. But here's, here's my honest train of thought. When I think about this story and I think about the idea of having 100 sheep, that alone sounds terrible, okay? But having to look out for 100 sheep and then you think about the idea that one of them gets away. You keep going about your business down your road. You get a couple miles down the road and realize, uh-oh, I lost one of my sheep. Like two miles back, the count was 100, but two miles this way, the count's 99. I've counted it twice. I've counted it three times. We're missing a sheep. Now, in my natural way of thinking, I look at it like this. All right, so we lost one. I still got 99. And it's amazing because that is the exact opposite heart and attitude that Jesus had toward the one lost sheep. Because when Jesus looked at the one lost sheep, what he's talking about in this story, Jesus is literally saying that the shepherd sees so much value in that one sheep that he recognizes that it's just as valuable as the 99 sheep who are not lost. I want to say first and foremost today that if the heart of Christ is is to see value in just the one, we need to see values in the ones who are also disconnected from the body of Christ. We have to grow to a place where we see things the same way that Jesus does, but it goes even further for me because think about what Jesus is saying here. The shepherd's gonna walk away from the 99 to go after the one. I mean, if you could lose one sheep while you're supervising 100, what's gonna happen when you walk away from 99 sheep, leave them unsupervised to go and try to find the one who's gotten lost? I mean, when those 99 sheep are left to their own devices and the shepherd's not around, what are they gonna do? Are they going to care enough about me running off to find the one lost sheep that they actually stay together so that when I come back, everything's good? Here's the reason I make this point. I think one of the reasons why the body of Christ as a whole hasn't been as effective as we need to be in reaching the lost sheep is because we are oftentimes more concerned about catering to the 99 than we are about going out and finding the ones. I mean that so wholeheartedly. Listen, that's not a condemning word or anything like that, but here's the thing. There are a lot of us that when we come to church on a Sunday and we look around and see so many people gathered, we're just like, wow, this is just awesome. And listen, it is awesome to come together as the body of Christ. I mean, when we get back into the office on Mondays and we're looking at, you know, what the weekend that was, you know, we, we always look at the numbers to see how many people were here. We want to know how many because every single number represents a life. But can I tell you something? We could see the number of people that come to this church just grow and grow and grow, but it will always be an unsatisfying and unsatisfactory number as long as we know there are ones out there who are not a part of this flock. You understand what I'm talking about this morning? Is everybody with me today? And the reason why is because God is concerned about the ones, so we should be concerned about the ones. Scripture says that when that shepherd goes out and he finds that lost sheep, he picks him up, he puts him over his shoulders, and he comes back to the flock rejoicing. Look what I got. I found our lost sheep. The one that was missing has been brought back. And it's from this part of the passage where we get this idea that every time one sinner repents, there's a party in heaven. The angels rejoice over that one decision that that one person made. I mean, heaven rejoices over this. 
Heaven absolutely throws a party over it. And I want to ask you a question this morning. How much do we care about seeing those ones come into relationship? Do we celebrate that the same way that God does? Do we celebrate it the same way that the angels do? Because if it's important to God, it ought to be important to us. Now, we were talking about fellowship when we started. How, how does this all relate to fellowship? I think the one piece that Jesus is wanting to point out here, what's he talking about? The one in the 100. Everybody needs to know whether you're currently in the flock or you've yet to come in. There is a place for you in the family of God. And as people who are already sheep of his pasture, we're a part of the flock, we need to have the attitude that lets the world around us know there's room for you in this family. There's a place for you in this house. There's a place for you in the body of Christ. Come in, get connected with God, and get connected with the rest of us because we have something to offer one another, let alone the thing that God wants to do in your life. Amen? I could spend a little bit more time talking about the party side and the rejoicing side, but we need to move quickly here. Second story Jesus tells right after that, tells the story of the lost coin. Look at verse 8. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my peace, which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, look what Jesus is doing. First of, all, first of all, he says everybody has a place in the family of God. There's room for fellowship within this family. But now he takes the number down. We were talking about the sheep, the one in the 100. Now he talks about coins and the one in 10. I love what Jesus does here because when I read this, the first thing I think of when you talk about the coins, I think about value and things which are valuable. Do you think that money is the most valuable thing to God? I don't think so. I think the reason why Jesus talks about coins here is to make us think about value and stop for one moment just to consider what is the most valuable thing to God. Can I tell you what the answer is? You are. You are the most valuable thing to God. But I'll go more specifically with you. The thing that is most important to God is those valuable people who have yet to come into the family of God. But there's a progression that takes place here in the story that I just absolutely love because he starts talking about the one in the 100 and he moves on to the one in the 10. And this week, you know, as we launch into connect groups, really that's what our connect groups look like. It's like many of us are part of the bigger crowd, but then when we move into smaller circles of connection, it doesn't have to be a connect group. It can be a, another different area of church life or fellowship within the body of Christ. But when we move into a smaller circle of connection, it is amazing how we begin to find value in ourselves and discover value in other people. I'm always blown away by this because as I look back over time, like, man, I get blessed coming into the house of God. And I love being a part of this body, this fellowship, this community of believers. But can I tell you the most important things that have happened to me in my Christian walk, the most encouragement I've ever got was when I got around other like-minded people in smaller circles of connection and they begin to pull the gold out of me and I begin to pull it out of them as well. Because value will always be found that way. God placed it there intentionally that we would have to dig for it. We would have to dig for it. Look at this woman, it says in, in uh, this parable. It says that this woman, she loses one coin out of ten. She doesn't say, well, hey, I got nine more. No, she says that one is as valuable as the other nine. So it says in the story that what does she do? She scours the house. She sweeps the house. She cleans the house. Every nook and cranny, every single place of that house until she finds that one coin that she's been looking for. She does everything that she needs to do to find that coin. And when she finds it, what does she do? She celebrates. It says that she calls her friends and her neighbors. And she says, come celebrate with me. Come rejoice with me because that which was lost has now been found. And 
I'm so just fascinated by this because when I think about this, the people that I think about are our connect group leaders. I remember, I told this story in first service. When my wife and I got married, we, we wanted to lead a connect group in our church. So we decided to, you know, lead a connect group together. And, you know, let's just say that we're kind of wired a little bit differently. Ashley's like, let's throw a party. Let's have people over. Let's put a bunch of food on. Let's go to the store and stock up. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I like it kind of quiet at the house. I would much prefer to go out somewhere public so that we don't have to do all that work. And, I mean, and Ashley would say something like this. She would be like, you know what we should do? We should have everybody over on Tuesday night, and we should play these games. And, like, we should make this food. And I'm like, whoa, 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 babe, hold on, hold on. If we're going to have everybody over a house, you know what that means? That means we're going to have to clean the whole house. We're going to have to get everything ready. We're going to have to go buy a bunch of food. We're going to have to go do all of these things because, like, that, that's kind of the way that I'm wired. I'm like, that's just, like, way more trouble than I'm wanting to go to. And I remember, like, literally having these conversations not once but multiple times when we were planning our connect group. And Ashley would literally say to me over the phone, she's like, hey, okay, slow your roll a little bit here. What's most important? Why are we doing this? Is it for our convenience or is it because there are people in our church who are disconnected? There are people in our lives who are disconnected. And if we will welcome them in, not only will they come into a relationship eventually with God, but they will find the value that he has placed in them because we will begin to pull it out of each other. That's the literal reason why we were doing it. And this woman, when she, not this woman, my wife, but this woman in the story, this woman, this woman in the story, when she began to realize that she had lost something of great value, she did anything and everything in her power to make sure that she found it. And I want to tell you something, that the value that God has placed within you and within me is something that is worth searching for. It's something worth digging for. It's something worth cleaning for. And if that means that you got to clean the house to have some people over to find it, then so be it. I'm so incredibly grateful for our connect group leaders because those are the people that say, hey, we're willing to do that. We'll have you over. We'll clean the house. I remember telling my wife, I'm like, babe, and then when they leave, we're going to have to clean the house again. <laughs> but the heart of people who see things as important we, the way that God does, we say, God, that's important to you, so it needs to be important to me. We're willing to go the extra mile to bring people into fellowship with God and with his family. Amen? Now, last story. We don't have enough time to read the whole thing. First, Jesus tells the story, the parable of the lost sheep. Then he tells the parable of the lost coin. You might know both of those, one of those. But the third story he tells is probably the one that all of us know. It's the, par it's the parable of the lost son or the parable of the prodigal son. We referred to this a few weeks ago. I did when I was speaking here in the church. And, you know, this young man, he comes to his dad and he says, Dad, you've worked your whole life to give me this great inheritance. I know that, you know, I'm going to inherit so much from you, but I'm really tired of living by your rules and living under your roof, and I want life my way. I want to go and do with my life what I will and what I want to do. So would you please give me my inheritance now? Give me what's coming to me now. I don't want to wait until the day comes that you've moved on. I want what's coming to me now so that I can go and do with it as I see fit. And the father in all of his love and grace for his son says, all right, it's yours, son. He gives it to him. And he gives him everything he worked his whole life for, and then Scripture says that the young man runs off and he just absolutely wastes it all away, chasing after his own pleasures and his own desires and doing all of these things that were never permissible within his father's home. But now he goes out to figure out life for himself, to satisfy all those inner longings that he had. And when he gets to the end of it, he's run out of money and he's completely unfulfilled, not to mention the fact that he's got an empty stomach and no money to buy food. Until one day he's standing looking at some pigs that are being fed and he says, man, these pigs are eating better than I am. If I could just get some of those scraps. And he says, you know, 
even the servants at my father's house who feed the pigs, man, they got three square meals a day. My father gave me my inheritance, everything he'd worked his whole life for, and I've just run off and I've just absolutely squandered it. Man, I could never go back home. I could never run home. I could never go back and tell my dad what I did with what he gave me. Because if I go home, man, I'm going to be shamed. He's just going to look at me and say, what have you done with everything that I gave you? But having nowhere else to go, Scripture says that the prodigal son runs back home. We all know the rest of the story. But it's just so beautiful because I think so many of us, including me, have experienced it. When we came back to God, we found that God wasn't there waiting to judge us, smash us over the head. He was waiting there with his arms wide open with the light on on the front porch saying, hey, where you been? I've been waiting on you. And I love that story because we all know that what happens is he throws this big party. But there's another side to it that is the test of our character if we're believers, if we're followers of Christ. And it's found at the end of this story. Look at Luke 15 real quick, verse 25. The prodigal son's older, not so prodigal brother said these words, or it says this about him. It says, now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to the older brother, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf with throwing a party. It's like prime rib for the next three weeks or whatever. Verse 28, but he was angry and he would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him to the older brother. And he answered and said to his father, lo, these many years I've been serving you I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might take Mary with my, or I might make Mary with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours, like it's not his brother anymore, as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood, everything you worked for, with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him? And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right... It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is now found. The father's trying to tell his son, he says, son, don't you understand the thing that's most important? I don't care what he did with what I gave him. I don't care about the mistakes that he made. I've been wondering this whole time if he's even still alive. He's ever going to come back, if everything's going to be okay. And suddenly he's come back. That's something that we can celebrate. And if it's important to me, son, it needs to be important to you too. And in coming back to fellowship, look at what happens here in these three stories. We have the one and the 100. Jesus wants us to know that there's a place for everybody within the community. Then you have the one in 10. God wants to place us in smaller circles of connection where we can pull the value, give and receive, be a part of the great exchange until finally, what do we see? The prodigal son and his father, the one on one. That is a picture of what God wants to do in our lives. And every step along the way, fellowship accomplishes that. It brings us into the family. It's where we find our value. And it's how we walk into a relationship one-on-one with God. And at the end of all three of these stories, there's this party portion of the story where somebody's celebrating. And it leaves us to this place where we have to ask the question, are we celebrating the thing that's most important to God also? Or are we sitting in the judgment seat the way that the older son did and says, well, I've never done anything to get a party for me. It's funny because at the end of all these stories, the party that's thrown is always for the lost person. Are we okay if the party's always for somebody else and not about us? Are we okay with that? Because what's important to God is seeing the missing pieces be found 
and brought back into place. In closing, last thing I want to say, last story I want to tell you. I was at a conference a few weeks ago and I heard this, a pastor that's speaking. He's a pastor I have a lot of respect for. And he has a son that's, uh, his youngest son is high-functioning autistic. And he told a story about going on vacation with some family friends and his son got lost. They were all standing in a coffee shop and they were getting coffee. And while they're ordering coffee and waiting, their son kind of slipped out one door and went into the shop next door. And when he went to this shop next door, everybody got their drinks and all went out the other door the other way. And it wasn't for 15 or 20 minutes that they began to look around and realize that they had lost their youngest son. And knowing how he might react socially and that he might be quickly frightened because he didn't see anybody that he knew, anybody that was familiar to him around him, they all began to get very worried and scared because they're like, we don't know how he's going to react. We can't find him. We can't see him. We don't know where he's at. And immediately, everybody in the family began to scatter and go different directions to try to find him. And this gentleman that was telling the story, this pastor, he says, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who to talk to first. I didn't know which direction to run. He said, when I walked out the front door of the coffee shop, I looked or walked back to the coffee shop I'd come from, I saw a security guard who had a radio on. And I thought, he could probably radio to other security guards in the area, and we can locate my son quickly. And when he walked up to this man, he said that this man responded to him as if he could absolutely care less about where his son was. He said, sir, it seems to me that right now you have more power than anybody else to be able to locate my son. If you could just radio into some other people. He said, he began to look at me and say, well, where was the last place that you left him? And he said, do you think I haven't asked myself that question 30 times now? And he said, why don't you seem to care about this as much as I do? And he said, I'm panicking. I have tears coming down my face. And all that I want is for someone else to care about this the same way that I do. He goes, you know, I look back now and I read through this passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 15. He said, and I sometimes wonder, did the thought ever occur to me? Well, hey, I still have two other kids. So if I lose this one, no big deal. He's like, no. He said, that's my son. That's my son. I was in the room when he was born. I've watched him grow up his whole life. We've watched him overcome so many obstacles. And if anybody thinks that I'm about to give up, he's like, I laid down my life for that kid. Well, guess what? Jesus laid down his for us. And he said, he is just as value as the two that I'm already able to locate. And I'm not going to stop searching until I find him. And eventually they found him. They brought him back, and the way that he says it, he's like, there's this amazing feeling of relief. It was like we wanted to throw a party because that whole stress and anxiety had gone away. I sometimes find myself asking the question, with the amount of people that I know of personally in my life, the ones who are missing pieces, who appear to be lost souls, who appear to be disconnected, how much do I care about them coming into a relationship with God? and being connected to the family of God and being in fellowship with God and his people. How much do I care about that? Because I think every single day of our lives, the heart of God beats for the missing pieces, for the ones who are disconnected, for the ones who are lost and the ones who have not found their place. And if God looks down at us and sees that we don't care, how much does that break the heart of God? I believe that God gave us fellowship so that we can care for one another, so that we can contribute to one another, but that so we can also care about helping people who are outside of the flock, outside of the family, know there's a place for them, that we can pull them close and pull the value out of them and pour into them as they pour into us, and that together we can walk into one-on-one individual relationships with God, 
but it all starts with understanding that what's most important to God has to be most important to us as well. Amen. Can I encourage you today? I want to end on a low note. I want to lift up a little bit, and I want to say, God created you for fellowship. You have something to offer the people of your world, and they have something to offer you. Don't neglect this beautiful gift that God has given to us called fellowship, the great exchange where I give and you give and I receive and you receive because it's not just a thing where we get together and enjoy each other's company. It is incredibly spiritual, and God designed it that way. After service today, we're going to have our Connect Group Expo outside and Obviously, this message has been very intentional for what's happening this fall, specifically with connect groups. But can I just tell you, man, if you're outside of a a, a relationship, a fellowship with other believers who can gather around the same purpose that you want to pursue with your life, find a a circle of people that you can pursue purpose with and see God just go to work in your life and bring blessing and use you to be a blessing as well. I encourage everybody to find a place in the body of Christ and experience fellowship. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for your goodness, God. We thank you for your grace, your mercy, your love and compassion that saved each and every one of us. We celebrate that. Father, we also recognize, Lord, that there are people that are outside of the family and you are not okay with it. Your heart breaks for people who are missing pieces, who appear to be lost souls, who are disconnected from your family and from you. I pray, God, that we would care so much that we would take on your heartbeat to see people come into fellowship with you and with your family, that we would do what we need to do. We would take our place. We would make your priorities our priorities. And truly together, as we are the assembled body of Christ, we would function at an even higher level. God, seeing your church move forward in our life, finding purpose and fulfillment. In Jesus' name. Just real quick, with heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe you're here and you feel like a relationship with God is the missing piece in your life. Maybe if you look at the family of God, you feel like you're the missing piece. Maybe you feel like you've been the lost soul, the prodigal son, the missing coin, the lost sheep. Maybe you feel like that's you today. Maybe you feel like you've been wandering aimlessly, looking for purpose, trying to find salvation and redemption. I want to tell you something today that God has placed value deep inside of you. So much so that he sent Jesus to take your place and my place on the cross so that we could have redemption and forgiveness for our sins, that we could walk into relationship with him because of the bridge that Jesus built. God extends grace and forgiveness to us, but it's up to us to cross that bridge and walk into relationship. And the way that we do it is by accepting him, believing him in our hearts, but also confessing with our mouth and making a decision, Jesus, I wanna follow you. If you wanna find that salvation, if you wanna find that forgiveness and then the purposes that he has for your life, it starts with a simple prayer and a commitment. We're gonna pray that prayer in just a moment. And I wanna invite every person in the house, if you've never made that decision, but you know today you need to walk into a relationship with God, would you repeat these words after me and mean it with everything inside of you? If you need to make a recommitment of your life, do the same. We're gonna pray this prayer now. Say, Jesus, I thank you for taking my place on the cross. I believe you died for me and that you rose again for me. I want your salvation. I want your forgiveness. I want your purpose. So today I choose you because I know that you love me. I'll live my life for you because you gave your life for me from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I know that's a really simple prayer, 
but it's a prayer of commitment and it's something that we do as step one in starting our relationship with God. We would love to help you if you made a decision today to start that relationship and continue on. If you're here today and you made that decision, we want to put a free gift in your hand. It's called The Next Seven Days. It's just a simple book, a simple tool to help you start that walk with God. There's two ways you can get it. Right after service, we'll have some prayer teams down here. If you need prayer, they're here to help you, pray with you, stand with you, and agree with you. But if you just want to get the book because you made that decision, let them know, hey, today I made a decision. I want to get the book. They'll give it to you. We don't need anything from you, but we're here to help you with anything that we can. If you need to go quickly, please go to the Next Seven Days desk. That's between the exit doors out in the foyer. Let them know. I prayed the prayer today. I made a decision to follow Jesus, and I want to get the book. They'll give it to you. We don't need anything from you. We just want to help you. But we're here to help with anything else that you might need. We are so thankful that you made that decision today. Can we put our hands